Smokey, this is not Nam, this is bowling. There are rules. Today, Junior! America! Steak. Four! Breakfast! So stand by! All right, everybody, welcome back to our second all-new edition of the Steak for Breakfast podcast. If you're your first-time listener, welcome to the show. And if you're a long-time listener, welcome back to America's fastest-growing political podcast. Getting things started here on this busy Friday afternoon on Steak for Breakfast. He's the congressman representing Florida 7, one of our great friends, Mr. Corey Mills. Welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me, brother. Oh, it's always a pleasure on our end, and uh, we're just glad to have you. There's a bunch of stuff I want to talk to you about, uh, maybe not necessarily as uh, related to the Hill as usual, but there are some things that I think that you could weigh in on and give some insight to our listenership on. First of all, we, we, we've seen a lot of struggle come out of the uh, Biden administration over the course of the last couple of weeks, especially since the release of the Robert Hur-led investigation, special counsel into Joe Biden's handling of classified material. How they've run interference to try and, you know, clean up that mess of Joe Biden is have many people within the administration go out and say that he's so mentally fit and sharp. In addition to that, uh, you know, they've reignited uh, Donald Trump's allegiance to Russia. People like Nancy Pelosi and, and Jamie Raskin has really been hitting that hard in the media. And then Joe Biden went and, and uh, burdened the taxpayers with a whole bunch more of student debt relief by paying off loans in an attempt to pander to the left. Uh, earlier this week. I know I saw you take some pretty good opinions on this, and I wanted you to share your insight with our listenership. Well, let's try and unpack that uh, kind of in the order that you laid it out. So let's first just talk about the very noticeable mental and cognitive decline that President Biden has had. We see the multiple gaps. We see that he's being propped up like the president from weekend at Bernie's. And the bottom line is, is that you've got Robert Hur, who's actually come forward and actually even questioned his capabilities to even be tried before a court because they don't find him to be, you know, knowingly or maliciously even uh, understanding what the crime was that he had committed, which is obviously the mishandling of classified information that not only could put assets and agents at risk, but also from a national security perspective, release things that we don't want our adversaries to know. And here they were being kept in his garage, but yet the left-wing media and the rest of the Democrats wanted to go after President Trump for things that he had the executive and presidential privilege to be able to declassify. That was secured in Mar-a-Lago. And if anyone has ever been out to Mar-a-Lago, it's one of the most secured areas that you could possibly think of with Secret Service everywhere, not sitting in a garage behind your green Corvette. <laughs> so the bottom line is, is that I signed on to a bill, the fifth letter uh, that Congressman Ronnie Jackson, remember, Congressman Jackson, who is a close friend of mine out of Texas 13, is probably the most qualified individual. Actually, he is the most qualified individual to be able to make the determination of a president's overall mental and physical health, given the fact that he is the only physician who has attended to three separate presidents. Now, as a congressional member, as a medical doctor and surgeon, he has put together a letter that challenges and asks for a mental competency test for Joe Biden. Here's why that's important, and here's why I think it's a win for America. One, if, in fact, Robert Hur's special report that he had put together does put into question whether or not Biden has the mental fitness to nation, realizing that he carries things like the nuclear football and makes day-to-day decisions on domestic and foreign policies, if he is not of mental fit, then he should be removed under the 25th Amendment. If, in fact, he is, as they claim, as you know, Corrine Jean-Pierre, the press secretary and others, then he should be actually tried and have the same indictments as what they were trying to press upon President uh, Trump. And so what we're seeing here is either there's going to be, and we already know this exists, 
a very clear two-tiered justice system that's going to lay it out for the American people right in their face. Not that we need this with the, you know, uh, Department of Injustice, which has basically gone after with 91 accounts for everything to include criminalization of political free speech against President Trump. But what this will do is either President Biden will be indicted because he's found to be mentally competent or he'll be removed on the 25th, in which case we need to start looking at the impeachment proceedings against Kamala Harris since she was a border czar, knowing that she was directly involved with the unsecured and open borders that led to nine hundreds of those on a terrorist watch list. And then that would put the number three into the White House, which would be Speaker Mike Johnson. And so, you know, my, my whole thing is, is that I think that we need to continue to press upon the fact that if he isn't mentally competent, that he should certainly be removed. And if he is, that he should absolutely have the indictments levied against him by special counsel her, the same way as President Trump did against special counsel Smith. Uh, on the second portion, when you're talking about the Russia, 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 this is just, again, this shows you exactly how desperate the left is. Not only are they trying to utilize lawfare against President Trump, but now they're trying to bring up the old, uh, you know, Ukraine and Russia, Russia, Russia hoax and that he's an operative, he's an asset. You've heard Rachel Maddow and all the other left-wing radical pundits who are trying to come out and say that he was somehow compromised simply because we don't want to continue to dump tax dollars to Ukraine simply because we don't want to continue to fuel and fund a never-ending war when America's greatest national defense and, and uh, security deficit is our actual debt itself. And so uh, a lot of things to kind of unpack here, but the bottom line is, is that we need to continue to keep the pressure on because 2024 is hands down the most important election that we're ever going to face. If you look at the $34 trillion, if you look at the open borders, if you look at our adversaries who feel emboldened, and if you look at our allies who are starting to lose confidence in our own U.S. currency and moving away from it. So this is a very pivotal time for America. These are darkest hours, but uh, we need to be the light and that shining light at, at, uh, and beacon, as they always just call it to refer to it. No, I mean, that's literally where we are at right now. And then when you talk about the potentiality of what's going on up on Capitol Hill. We all know you guys are getting back uh, three days before the first step of the ladder continuing resolution ends. There's been a lot of figures out, you know, whether they're doing the media this week while you guys are in district or speaking at CPAC saying it might be time to send Joe Biden that message and shut the government down because, you know, as they're trying to leak out rumors that he's looking at executive orders to return to some of the Trump era policies to try and stem the disaster at the border, people are still pouring in every day. And here's the thing. If, if Joe Biden goes and uses some executive orders to shut down the border, which essentially would go back to the Trump era policies uh why hadn't he done it for the last three years which would probably hold him even more liable for the disaster that's going on just by letting everything be wide open well the bottom line is that he could actually utilize the executive unilateral authority that goes around congress known as 212 section f and it talks about his ability to completely shut the border down i personally think what we need and i know it's taboo to say i know people aren't going to like to hear it sometimes because it sounds cold-hearted I think America needs the largest deportation of criminal migrants that, that we've ever seen. Correct. I think that we need a temporary immigration moratorium yes. so that our justices can cross those who are seeking the uh, claims of asylum. Now, here's the bottom. For me, this is, this is the key. If you've actually bypassed three, four, five, and six countries, if you've actually gone and utilized you know, plane, trains, and automobiles in order to try to get to America, you're not seeking asylum. You're an opportunist who's trying to drain down on either the social welfare programs or take jobs away from Americans. Yep. And so we have to start prioritizing and make America first. We have to start pressuring the Senate to pass HR2, the Secure the Border Act. And I want to go back to your first point, talking about the CRs. I have voted against every continuing resolution. And why? 
because those continuing resolutions allow the spending at the Nancy Pelosi post-COVID spending, which had a 30 to 40% increase in the overall government bloated spending, we should be looking right now, if we went back to 2019, we added a three, three and a half percent interest that was going per year. We should be looking somewhere around 1.471 trillion in spending, but we're closer to two plus, you know, three trillion in spending. And so the, the out of control spending in DC, we talk about cuts, but what we really need is we need reforms. We need to make sure we have an economic growth strategy like we had with Steve Scalise with HR1, the Low Cost Energy Act, that not only allows us to produce and drill baby drill to get to energy security and energy independence, but it backs our currency, remembering that in 1971, 73-ish, we moved away from the gold standard to the petrodollar. That's a great move, so long as you're actually producing the tangible asset in which your dollar and your currency is backed upon, which is oil and gas. It is LNG. It is energy. And we can talk all day about our adversaries trying to eliminate our U.S. dollar from being the global currency. The global currency is energy. Whoever is producing their own energy and enough for exportation, not just being an importer and a consumer of, is actually the world power. That's why you're seeing China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, all the others who have had this geopolitical alignment forming like bricks for further trade. So we've got to understand that we need to get control of our spending, of our budget. We need to have the checks and balance. It's a simple equation for any business owner. My account receivables must exceed my account payables. If not, I am insolvent. And when you put it into the most simplest of terms, every dollar that we borrow from China, roughly 73 cents of that is already spent on mandatories, which no one wants to open up and reform and to protect and preserve. Then you've got roughly next year, 12 to 13 cents of that dollar, which is going just to servicing our interest payments. Our interest next year on our 34 trillion and growing debt will be the equivalent and actually exceed our national defense spending per year. You're talking 900 plus billion dollars just in interest payments alone. Now you've got the 14 cents or so that, you know, we obviously all understand needs to go into our defense because we need a robust and strong military, which means that when the Republican or Democrat party talks to you about how we're making these 20 and 30% cuts, what they're really saying is that we're making a 20 to 30% cut of the available six to eight cents that we even have our fingers on of that dollar we borrow from China. Wild. It's wild. I mean, all those numbers are accurate. They line up exactly with the way things are falling out. And, you know, one of the things that, I, that I've come to, you know, f- learn from a couple different sources up on the Hill this week, Corey, is that one of the biggest reasons that the Democrats are pushing to remain at these uh, post-COVID levels is because a lot of these special programs and funds that are earmarked into the continuing resolutions are now funding the migrant crisis that they've initiated well, in all exactly these right. major cities. And, uh, you know, we're wasting billions of dollars on migrants using COVID uh, relief packages all across the country. And, and what's happening? Crime is on the rise. The educational uh-huh. system's getting wrecked. The hospital system yep. is getting wrecked. And uh, there's no end to it in sight. Last thing I want to touch with you on, you can answer as briefly as you want. You know, we've talked about border security. We know what it's going to take to lock it down. That It's probably going to come on the other side of the election next year when we get back to real border security. But the fact of the matter is this. You know, that border security agreement that happened in the Senate was the most important bill until Mike Johnson did a little Uno reverse on Chuck Schumer, shelved it like he did H.R. 2 in the Senate and just doesn't want to, you know, bring it to the floor in the House. I think it's a it's a textbook move. But here's the thing. 
Now they're pushing for these supplemental aid packages. I, I do think we need to help out Israel, but the Ukraine one is completely out of control. And where does Chuck Schumer go? Down to the U.S. southern border? Absolutely not. Right now he's in Kiev, Ukraine, okay. meeting with Zelensky and probably reassuring them when Congress gets back in session, don't worry, I'll get you your supplemental aid package. How are House Republicans looking to tackle this? Well, I can tell you right now, I'm an absolute no on any further funding to Ukraine. I am not going to continue to prioritize the borders of other nations while hardworking Americans are waking up before light and they're going to bed after dark whenever, you know, they're just getting home at 11 o'clock. Yep. And then I'm telling them I have to take their taxpayer dollars to pay for another country. Absolutely not. When it comes to the supplementals for Israel, there are many offsets. We should be looking at taking the unused COVID funds Good to point. help to process that. We should be looking at things like taking money from the Green New Deal. We should be looking at allocating money that was supposed to go to the 87,000 IRS deep state agents that were going to be added. Utilize these as offsets that allows it to help our ally drain down the resources the radical left had allocated and then also continue to not try and increase our overall national debt. This is the way that we responsibly, from a physical conservative perspective, save and protect our allies, protect our nation, and also protect the American taxpayers. That's important to me. My priority is I was not elected by Zelensky. I wasn't aware Ukraine was the 51st state. I was elected by Florida's 7th district, and I represent the American people. That's who I fight for, and I'm going to continue to fight for. You've done a great job of doing it, and, and for the rest of the American public, Corey. We're going to be live linking your congressional website in the show description today. Anybody that wants to follow you on social media and track all the great work that you're doing, where can they find you? Well, they can find us at Rep Mills Press on Twitter. They can find me at Corey Mills FL, or you can find us at Mills for Florida on Truth. Absolutely fantastic. This is the congressman who's representing Florida 7, one of our favorite America First Warriors out there. Representative Corey Mills, thanks for joining us today, getting the show started, and have a fantastic rest of the weekend. Thank you so much. God bless. You told Maria Bartiromo that you may campaign in the Bronx or at Madison Square Garden. When might that be happening? Uh, very soon. Look, we have nine months yet, uh, but I'm going to uh, see about Madison Square Garden and we're going to go to the South Bronx and we're going to go to Queens and other areas because if you look at what's happened in New York, I'm not even blaming the mayor. I think the mayor has sort of been told to take a back seat a little bit because they came after him violently. You know, they came after him like they're going to indict him when he started speaking up and now he's become quiet. These are fascists we're dealing with. They're terrible people. All right, jumping back into the news and our second of two brand new Steak Breakfast podcast, Friday editions. Donald Trump sat down with the Botox queen, Laura Ingram, for a town hall in South Carolina this week. Noah, you know your concert venues. Mm -hmm. And when you hear about a Donald Trump rally at some place as historic as Madison Square Garden, right off the top of my head, I think Frank Sinatra. I think yeah. Barnum and Bailey Circus. Mm -hmm. And I think... That's probably one of the biggest venues that you could ever hold a Trump rally at. I mean, what's bigger? What has more of a iconic? You say that name, people know exactly what it is. Yeah. yeah. No matter who. Maybe some of these people that just got dropped off at a transit center in San Diego might not know, but. Oof. No, it's the truth. And, you know, I, I think it, Donald Trump at MSG, maybe even holding a couple rallies outside, like he had mentioned in the Bronx or one of the other five boroughs would be absolutely amazing. I know. They're trying to get places like New York and New Jersey in play. I think for the popular vote, everyone counts. And I think for the amount of crosstabs, and we're talking about African-Americans, Asians, Hispanics, who are coming back under the MAGA tent right now, especially after living over three years under the Joe Biden economy and want to get back to, I'm going to say it again, MAGAnomics, it's, uh, it's huge. And it's going to be really interesting. I don't think we'll see a date for that. 
before Super Tuesday on March 5th. But if I was going to guess, I would say sometime after March 5th and mid-April when he will for surely have locked up the Republican nomination, delegate-wise, we will see Donald Trump in MSG. So this town hall was kind of interesting. I think the focus group will hear at the end of people who went into it not voting for Trump or saying they weren't voting for Trump uh, at this point in the primary and and how that kind of changed is going to be a little eye-opening for our listenership. But uh, one of the other things that I thought was the biggest piece of fake news that I heard all week was when Laura Ingram, and it's funny because people broke this down kind of like when there's like movie trailers that come out and people look for Easter eggs, so they break it down like frame by frame. Donald Trump's face and AFAC when Laura Ingram brought up a list of potential vice presidential candidates. Um, part of the list was cringe. The other part of it was probably hell no. And it seemed like this might have been one of the questions that may not have been ran past the team or approved going in. But, you know, everybody wants to make news. And, of course, they uh, strategically edited it to seem otherwise. I'm going to play the clip now. No, I don't know if you've heard it, but uh, I'm sure a lot of our listenership has. And uh, you tell me what you think. The audience has uh, been asked who they think would be a good choice. And various names came up. Um, uh, one of them was, of course, Vivek Ramaswamy. No. He's oh. made a big splash. Ron DeSantis, who's oh. Made, oh. making an appearance, oh. appearance today in South Carolina, we just found out. That's um, when he got obviously, pissed. Tim Scott, Byron Donalds, oh. and a, a big uh, presence here for Tulsi Gabbard. Oh. Um, very interesting. Um, are, and Christy Nome as well, I should say. Right. Are, are, are they all on your short list? And when can you. Did you hear the way that kind of went down and how. Abruptly, he had kind of answered and ended it. Mm -hmm. Let's just go through the names. So Vivek Ramaswamy still has Vivek 2024 hashtags and links to donate on his official Twitter page. Mm -hmm. So let's just take that into consideration. Donald Trump has also drastically reduced the amount of FaceTime that he's doing with him at public speaking events. I think it says a lot. Um, when you have someone as animated as Vivek Ramaswamy, but instead you're bringing up Doug Burgum to speak at your rallies, it says something. He's keeping him at an arm's length. That's my opinion. I don't know if you feel the same, Noah. There are a lot of Vivek hardliners out there who says he has to be the VP. We just never have seen it. She also brought up Ron DeSantis. Now, this was a day before the leaked audio from a phone call that Ron DeSantis did with GOP supporters where he talked about Donald Trump's failures during his first term in office and his inability to work with facets of Congress, more specifically, former disgraced Speaker Paul Ryan, who Ron DeSantis was aligned with, while Chris Lasavita and Stephen Chong absolutely destroyed him. You know, they were saying, like, break out the pudding cups and the high heels. It was, like, that bad. Um, all of our listenership knows Caroline Levitt did a good job of uh, deconstructing that narrative for Ron DeSantis as well. And then when you talk about people like Byron Donalds, we love him. We also understand that he's 6'2", 275 pounds, African-American. Ain't scared of shit. Donald Trump is not changing his address to have Byron Donalds on the ticket with him for this presidential election. It's not going to happen. In addition, Byron Donalds is not stepping down from his House seat, which we only have a two-vote majority at the moment, to join the ticket with Donald Trump. It just seems really weird to me. And then the last one, Tulsi Gabbard. Now, I know she's left the Democrat Party and switched her party affiliation to independent over the course of the last, what, year, year and a half? 
She's also headlining a fundraising event at Mar-a-Lago as people who are towing the party line for Donald Trump to run for president are doing right now. That's what they're doing. They're, you know, Marsha Blackburn's out doing the same thing. Christy Nome's out doing the same thing. So is Ben Carson and Tim Scott. Tulsi Gabbard's voting record in its totality when she served was atrocious. She was a shit lib. In addition, she endorsed publicly Joe Biden for president in 2020. That was three and a half years ago. In addition to that, she also referred to Donald Trump as someone who didn't care about the military and didn't like the fact that, and I'm quoting her now, pimped them out to places like Saudi Arabia for security against Iran. I can understand that people can change, but if you think a night and day change like that warrants her joining a ticket with Donald Trump, just to pander for some votes outside of what he's already going to bring in. Now remember, three and a half years ago, him and Milk Toast Mike Pence got over 75 million votes. So it's not like Donald Trump always says, it's not going to be someone with star power. It's going to be the person that could step directly into the job. God forbid something happens to him. And I just don't think someone like Tulsi Gabbard meets that threshold right now, in my opinion, based off of who she's been for the entirety of her life outside of the last 15 months. And it's pretty weird. Tulsi Gabbard like, leaves the Democrat Party and all of a sudden she puts out a new book. She starts her own podcast that's monetized. And then she wants to get on the ticket with Donald Trump. So, again, I'm still Christy Nome, Ben Carson as my one in one a And people like probably Elise Stefanik, even Tim Scott. And again, Tim Scott, Donald Trump looks at everything. His poll numbers in this last presidential primary were disgusting. He did not gain traction anywhere with any kind of demographic, not soccer moms, not minorities, not nationally. So I think he looks at that and, and is probably taking into account, what is this person going to add and are they ready to step in and be president? I don't know if any of them are, even our picks, Christy Noman, and Ben Carson, but when you talk about the gag gifts like Vivek Ramaswamy, and I'm not hitting Byron Donalds, but listen, I feel like he's got a statewide race to win in his future, whether it be for a United States senator or governor of Florida, and at some point, he will run for president and probably do very well. But, I mean, the guy's only been in Congress for a couple sessions. And, and he also lives in the same state as Donald Trump. So, with the finite amount of time we have before the nomination is locked and the RNC convention, just doesn't make any sense to me. We'll have to see how it plays out. One of the things she talked about, and, and it's something that a lot of people try to bring up with Donald Trump. Why don't you just walk away? You know, you ran for president and they demonized you. They ruined your first term in office. You worked for free. A lot of people forget that, too. Remember Noah? He, he took $1 a paycheck? Oh, yeah. Donated, Nothing. Donated it all to different agencies or charities and stuff like that. You know, he's got a nice life, beautiful wife and family. Kids are doing well. And uh, he's a billionaire. About to be billionaire-er when that true he social merger He doesn't need through. this fucking headache. That's for damn sure. No. And for anyone to think that he's not in it for himself at this point, you know, especially after a couple of these civil rulings, remember, in the course of the last, like, four weeks, Donald Trump is on the hook for $500 million in the state of New York and risking losing having his name and enterprise erased from the city that he helped build. But he always seems to have a very stoic answer for that. Let's hear it. Or just say to yourself, you know... I'm done. This, this is what they 
And I why? Can't. A lot of people would have said, I'm going to come out. Why are you staying in this? I can't because I want to make America great again. It's not great right now. And we can do that. We can do that. We can do that. Laura, we can do it. We can get it fixed. It's harder now. It would have been so much easier if we just finished off that. Four. Everything would have been so perfect. We had the border set. Everything was set to rock and roll. We had no. So inflation. you feel like you have an obli- you have an obligation to America I do. because you, I mean, it's coming. It's interesting. I, I like that mm-hmm. angle. I mean, he made a promise, and I feel like what they did with COVID stopped him from eventually. I mean, the border wall weeks away from completion. A, a new deal with Iran weeks away from completion, the strides that he had made with the Abrams Accords, having China bend the knee, Putin not doing anything, it, all weeks, if not months away from huge things happening for this country. Energy dominance, getting away from energy independent and finally drilling actual oil in the United States and refining it here and exporting it to other countries. But, you know, it, it, and it's the truth. I feel like as a businessman... And me and you don't have any experience in this field, no. We've worked for businesses, but we aren't businessmen like Donald Trump was. You just have to take into consideration, like, when a deal goes bad, you make up for it with the next one. And you learn from your mistakes. And you realize the people who are loyal to you. And I think it, uh, it makes for a great comeback story, which is where we're at right now. One of the good parts about this town hall setting was the fact that the crowd was able to interact with President Trump. And uh, I pulled a couple clips of that. One was from someone who uh, got a little bit emotional when they had the chance to ask the 45th president a question from the heart. Let's hear it. Mr. President, Tammy's in the audience. She has a question. Tammy. Good afternoon, President Trump. Hi. Um, First of all, I'd like to say we miss you. Thank you. And we are truly... We are truly sorry for the scrutiny that you are under on a daily basis, which leads to my question. How do you keep the demeanor that you do and um, keep your spirits so high when you're obviously being um, attacked by the other side all the time? Well, thank you very much for that. I, I really appreciate that question. Because I do get it. I'll tell you, Tammy, I get two questions the most. Will they do it again? That's number one question. Will they do it again, sir? Will they do it again? We have a lot of checks. We have a lot of things. And, you know, last time I campaigned, I did great. And then I went home and I saw bad things happening. And we all know that. But that's number one. The second thing is, how do you take it? Which is your question. And I don't know the answer to that, except I must be wired in a certain way, because I have a lot of very, very, not even friends, friends and enemies. But I have a lot of people come up to me like Wall Street tycoons, Big, tough, smart people. And they say, how the hell do you take it? You got indicted four times. These guys, if they ever got indicted once, I mean, they'd crawl into a corner and say, mommy, take me home. I can't take it. (laughs) It's true. Do you pray regularly? I pray. I pray. What's, what's, I mean, if you don't mind me asking, because I know this is a very faith-filled audience here, and I know there are people across the globe pray for you and your safety. They're worried about your safety. Um, no, they are. And they, they and, want... And I, and can do I you feel honest? that? Do you feel the power of that? I do, but can I be honest? I worry about their safety, too. These people, everybody in this room is in great danger right now. We have a nuclear weapon that if you hit New York, uh, South Carolina is going to be gone, too. 
uh, I worry about their safety. I think it's the reason I'm doing this. I'm worrying about this country. This country is in such trouble. We have incompetent people running our country right now. The only thing they're good at is being vicious. They're vicious, horrible people. And that's what they're good at. They're good at doing the election stuff and demeaning people. Mm. We want to get together. I think we can get together. Will and you I work with before, Democrats in cities that I know yeah. you love because you spent so much yeah, time yeah. in all these cities? So sad. You've said say after that. Iowa you would work with any Democrat yeah. in any city or state to fix their problems. Yeah. Will you? Well, I went a step further. I, you know, the top 25 worst cities in terms of crime, and if they're all run by Democrats, I mean, virtually every one of them, it's Democrats. I'm going to work with the Democrats. We're going to rebuild our cities. We're going to rebuild those 25 plus cities, and we're going to make our cities great again. We're also going to make our capital. Our capital, last night, two people were killed again. We have people going in from South Carolina. They want to go and see uh, the Washington Monument or something, anything, and they end up getting shot in Washington, D.C. You, you know it better than anybody. It's dangerous. I just lost somebody who was, who was killed last Your week, staff. who was a phenomenal young man. He was, his carjack, he was carjacked, and the man shot him. This thug shot him through the head right in front of his wife. His wife was coming out, and he was killed almost instantaneously. Yeah. And a great guy. Uh, this should not be in our capital. We will run that with such, I want to federalize it. I want to take it back. We want to clean it, fix the roads. The roads have potholes. I just, I can imagine these leaders coming in from other, you know, they hear the United States, they come in from other countries. They look at roads that are filthy, dirty with dirt, with, with paper and, and cartons and garbage. Oh, all fentanyl over. and homelessness, with all of it the together. homeless, the tents all over the parks. Uh, no, we're going to take over Washington, D.C. We're going to federalize. We're going to have very powerful crime. And you're going to be proud of it again. We're going to take the graffiti off the beautiful marble columns, Awful. the swastikas off the columns, and we're going to make it beautiful again. And, and you want to know what the biggest takeaway from the mainstream media was with, with that entire answer right there, which I thought was brilliant, you know. People pray for you, President Trump. Well, I pray for them. And, and you know, the public is worried for you. Well, well this is the reason I'm doing it. I'm... I'm worried about them. They're the ones who are in danger probably more than me. I mean, he's got Secret Service and private protection around him 24-7. And, you know, he talks about not being able to walk outside of your house. He did have someone that was connected to the last administration. Uh, I think I read it off when, when one of the shows that you weren't here, Noah. You know, the guy was getting into his car in a parking garage. His wife was a couple yards behind him coming out of a store, and somebody tried to carjack him. Uh, Trump staffer fought back, got shot in the head, was in a coma for five days, and then died. You know, it's uh, what's going on in this country right now touches everyone and no one is safe. Like friends, family, yourself, when you go out in public, no matter how safe you think your neighborhood or, or your mall or your grocery store is, the crime and the illegals and, and just the, the downfall of society right now is everywhere. It's in your kids' schools. It's in hospitals. You can't avoid it. But, uh, you know, he talks about cleaning off the graffiti and removing swastikas and you know how people who are from like the tri-state area in new york new jersey and, and pennsylvania they they sometimes hard r words like soda and stuff like that when they talk about you know soda he said swastikas a couple times and and swastikas <laughs> i saw jen Psaki, i saw rachel maddow i saw joy reed i saw caitlin collins and friggin jake tapper all say like you know donald trump said the word swastika like five times on the campaign trail this week and i was like out of that entire answer which i'm not gonna lie it's got me a little verklempt uh because i feel like it's heartfelt it's like 
one step away from when he goes off script and reads off the teleprompter, I feel like that answer was like another level. Like it was actually personal about how he feels because of the way the woman asked him the question. And then they want to go and say he said SWAT stickers. <laughs> Pot I stickers. Mean, people say that shit all the time. Yeah. Soders, SWAT stickers. <laughs> That's the way my dad talked to me. I'm, I'm from North Jersey, so originally. Yeah. It's just uh, the stuff that these guys pull out of it and put into their news narrative is just hilarious to me. Guys, wherever you're listening to the show today, whether it's on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or iHeartRadio, please make sure you subscribe to the Steak for Breakfast podcast. Helps us out big time. Algorithms brings us up in suggestions. The Apple Top 100 for podcasts uh, featuring news and commentary. And make sure it's downloading to your electronic device. In addition, Twitter, Getter, True Social, and Instagram is where we have social media. Follow our accounts. Hit the notification bell. Never miss out on anything Steak for Breakfast. Got one more question from the town hall. It was the one that made headlines. We've seen Laura Ingram ask this town hall that he just did will be twice. Sean Hannity asked it once. And then, of course, the mainstream media goes wild with it whenever they talk about retribution or revenge. There was somebody from the audience who brought it up. Laura Ingram tried to hammer it home. And here's what Donald Trump had to say. How can you assure independent and undecided voters that your focus as president will be on improving the state of our country and not settling those old scores? <laughs> it's an interesting question, I must say. <laughs> Look, I did it before. We had a great four years, especially before that very last part where COVID came in, and we did a great job there. We've been given great uh, marks on the economy and on the military and on foreign affairs, but never got the credit we should have gotten in that. We did something amazing. And the stock market was higher in the end. But just before the China, I call it the China virus because I like to be accurate, came into <laughs> onto our shores. We had the greatest economy in the history of the world, even going up to the end. But this period of time, and it was success. Successful is the word I'm using to answer your question. We had such success in history. Some of your favorite pollsters like McLaughlin and Fabrizio, I met them the day before I heard the word COVID or pandemic, the day before. And we were talking about the next election coming up. They said, sir, if Abraham Lincoln and George Washington came back from the dead, they couldn't beat you. We had the greatest economy ever. And the people, let's call them on the left and far left, were calling me. We want to get together. I've never seen anything like it. I said, do you believe this? Everybody was happy. African-American, Asian-American, Hispanic-American. We're going to get and by the way, because of your when polls you look at, that. When you look at the poll numbers today with African-American, no. Hispanic-American, we're doing better than any But the question about score settling, a lot, a lot of women, you know, they don't, a lot of women voters, they don't like the name calling. They don't like the score settling. They just, like they the love your calling. policies. And mm -hmm. they just want Trump's policies, maybe not so much of the other stuff. So I think that's what the, the question, well, no, if but, you don't mind my asking, I think that's what she's getting Well, at. But, I, but also you want to say, how do you get together? We're going to get together through success. When this country, the country was at a level that we've never, we had the best employment numbers in history. Everything was good. And this country was coming together. Then we got hit with COVID. But this country came together. Uh, I don't care about the revenge thing. I know they usually, usually use the word revenge. Will there be revenge? Uh, my revenge will be success. And that's how he kind of framed it. Now, listen, we all know Donald Trump never forgets, ever forgets. We all know what he's going through right now. There will be revenge and retribution, whether anybody likes it or not. And by that, I mean, like, when he says he's going to fire 
a third of the federal government administrative workforce in the first 100 days. I 100% believe him. These are the people that gummed up every single thing that he wasn't able to get done throughout the course of his first term and leading up to the 2020 presidential election. In addition, there's going to be agencies reduced, if not completely shuttered under a future Trump administration. And then legally, all you could do is hope that he puts the right and the proper people into places like the FBI, the CIA, the Justice Department. So if there are crimes to be investigated, and we could all pretty much make our own hypotheses on what they could be, then they go ahead and take care of them. You know, if people that uh, swear an oath to office go out and lie to the American public, whether it be in the halls of Congress, Florida Senate, or in the media, and it's proven to be a lie, then they should be held accountable for those crimes which misled the American people. But at the end of the day, it's not like Donald Trump's going to have uh, SWAT teams pulling up to Nancy Pelosi's house and ripping her out by her hair, making her husband put his clothes back on, put the hammer down. You know, it's just, uh, I think it's going to look a little bit different. And uh, before we jump in with Trump attorney Jesse Benal to get an update on everything that's going on there, I did pull a clip of the focus group, which aired on Fox News, I believe the day after the town hall. And what these people were going in is, is ones who did not want to vote for or weren't voting for Donald Trump before the town hall. They got to watch it on the big screen with one of the commentators. And then we're asked about it afterwards if their minds had been changed or if Donald Trump said some stuff that had stuck with them. And it was pretty interesting to hear from this group. Let's check it out. Why don't we do a show of hands? Yes. If any of you change your votes. Yes. I was leaning Trump. I'm definitely going to vote Trump now. How about you guys? Same. Yes. I went to both the Nikki Haley town hall and now the Donald Trump town hall. And I can safely say that I think I'm going to vote for Donald Trump. Matt? Well, like you said last night, I was 50-50, you know, kind of riding the line. But Trump really pulled pretty hard today. I really enjoyed just we didn't have to talk jokes. Let's just talk policy. And for once, we got that out of Donald Trump today. I think what we've seen here, though, yesterday, at least three of you were very undecided. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump really flipped this. And now we have a unanimous panel of Trump supporters. Did you expect that's where you'd land, Eric? Eric? Well, when he read that thing about the Eighth Amendment, because my biggest fear also was the legal challenges. And to me, even though it was simplistic, uh, it showed me he had at least a a strategy. Like, he he has a a plan to get out of these troubles. Mm -hmm. And for me, Mm -hmm. uh, when he said that he was doing it for America, I believed him. And so, therefore, I felt to myself, I owe him that, at least to give that uh, vote to him on that that, that reason. Matt, when I said... To him, you know, you could just say I'm done. Like I, I, I can't. This is too much. I mean, for mm-hmm. most human beings, it would be too just much. Give up. I mean, I, I, my heart breaks for him for you what could has see it happened. In his eyes when I forget who asked it today, but you could see it in his eyes when he said, "I'm not worried about my safety. I'm worried about the safety of this country and its people." That was a very powerful remark by the that, president. I think so too. Yeah. That line. What do you think, Noah? There was one yes, one no, and three maybes going in. End of the town hall, and after a little bit of deliberations, we've got five for five now, all strongly supporting Donald Trump. And they said the the biggest hitting point that he was able to get across to them, number one, policy, and number two, they believe him when he talks from the heart, which I think is one of the things that Donald Trump offers that almost no other politician can do. Yeah, he he always answers exactly what he means. The guy the guy doesn't like fuck around. He he says he says what he means. He means what he says, and 
that should definitely sway people that are seeing the the condition of the country right now. Like if if if, if somebody saying they want to make America great again doesn't sound like a positive to you, then you have a mental disorder. Yeah, you certainly do. I think he calls it, maybe you've heard of it, Noah, Trump derangement, derangement syndrome. syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> Got two polls to read before we jump in with Jesse Benal. This is a general election poll came out yesterday from Michigan University Law. Uh, Trump 52, Biden 48. That's a plus four for the 45th president in a general election poll. Add RFK to the mix. Trump 43, Biden 40, RFK 14%. And then I think the only one that matters right now is the poly market poll, and that's the digital gambling on who's going to win it. Here's some of the cross tabs. 99% feel that Donald Trump will win the South Carolina primary tomorrow. 98% feel that the Supreme Court will vote in favor of Donald Trump and he will appear on the Colorado ballot. 96% feel the same for the main ballot. And 90% of the money that's going into Vegas right now feels that Donald Trump will win South Carolina by over 20%. I'm hoping he wins by over 30. And then right now, the head-to-head matchup in a four-way race with Trump, Biden, Big Mike, and RFK Jr. has Donald Trump 55, Joe Biden 32, Michelle Obama 5, RFK 2%. And that's where the Vegas money has it at the moment. What do you think about those uh, dollars and cents, Noah? Dollars. I like Lots it, too. Dollars. All right, guys, we're getting ready to jump in with Trump attorney Jesse Van But before we do, another check-in with one of our partners. It's an unpleasant truth that 42% of Americans are obese and 79% of Americans are overweight. That's practically one in every two Americans living day-to-day with every minute counting down to the end of an unhealthy existence. It's time to change that and make Americans healthy again. You've probably heard about weight loss injections that can help you get back into that right mindset and help curb those cravings so you can focus on what's really important. New Hope Wellness has changed thousands of lives and maybe it can change yours too. They are American family owned and operated with the goal of saving lives. With convenient telehealth options, you can speak to a licensed professional from the comfort of your own home and all products are delivered discreetly to your front door. Visit newhopewellness.com forward slash state and start your journey to a better you. That's newhopewellness.com forward slash state to get your free consultation and hundred bucks off your first order. 1-800-527-2150. Make America healthy again. All right, joining us next on the show today, this big Friday edition of the Steak for Breakfast podcast. He's the constitutional attorney who heads the Banal Law Group. Always great to sit down with Mr. Jesse Banal. Welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me again. Well, we want to jump right into it here and, and talk about some of the fallout from the ruling that we saw up in Manhattan last week where Judge Ngoron, minus a jury and extremely in a partisan nature, went, I would say, ridiculously above the threshold, but even... Any of the experts thought Donald Trump might be fined in the, uh, and I'm air quoting now, Jesse, fraud case to his business dealings in <laughs> New York City. And uh, we'll get into what's happened since then. But, you know, I, I'm pretty sure the Trump team was ready for it. But at the same time, it's like the dollar amount, much like the Eugene Carroll, where that went in at like $5 million-ish they were talking about and $84 million. This one, you had people all over the news who were, Experts in the field, building appraisers, people who are in the industry saying, if this gets anywhere near $100 million, it'll be ridiculous. Well, $350 plus million later, here we are. Yeah, here we are. And I'll tell you that the the really sad thing here is that, as I think you've pointed out, this case is completely um, divorced from the facts and certainly the law. Um, you know, uh President Trump never never did anything even approaching fraudulent other than, you know, all he did here is behave like a responsible um, uh, businessman. 
Um, and, and by responsible, I mean, you know, he, he took and put together, um, uh, statements that were given to, to lenders. He told them to rely on their, their own due diligence, which is exactly what they did. And then when he got loans on these properties, he paid them all back and the lenders made millions and millions of dollars, which is why the lenders weren't in court, uh, supporting the state of New York. They were in court supporting Donald Trump. So this case is has been crazy from the beginning. Um, but what we have is a judge who in the past has bragged about being a judicial activist and has um, done has gone far beyond what judicial activists have done in the past. You know, if you if you go back to the days of, you know, Justice Earl Warren um, and, uh, you know, some of the other Supreme Court justices that gave us decisions um, like Roe versus Wade, they let their political opinions bleed over into their judicial philosophy in in policy ways. Now, this judge has taken it, and too many other judges are right now, are letting judicial activism bleed over in such a way where they're um, going after individual people and trying to destroy individual people, not based on the facts, not based on the law, but based purely on politics. And that, that is how the rule of law in America dies. Once we have people that continue to do that, once judges use their judicial power in order to try to destroy political opponents, um, and it's actually really, really scary right now because we have a, a crisis of conscience uh, and too much of, of the uh, American judiciary right now where you have uh, not only judges but judicial chambers, you know, the offices that, that the judges work in with other judges where they are far too free, um, feel far too free uh, to let their politics determine their judicial decision-making. And in fact, in many instances, they are cheered on by their judicial colleagues and their staff when they get to stick it to their political opponents. That is not the way that, uh, that our justice system is supposed to work. Um, the American people, no matter what side of the political spectrum that they're on, um, they know that this is not a fair judicial proceeding. That this is not an impartial judicial proceeding. You know, people on the left, they may be happy that, you know, judges like Engeron are sticking it to Donald Trump or trying to stick it to Donald Trump. Um, people on the right uh, and other just fair-minded Americans think that it's atrocious and it's awful what's happening, but no one thinks it's fair. I think that's the best point you made right there. And then when, when you look at the, the overall partisan nature of this and the way the justice system is becoming much of the same, uh, obviously Letitia James ran on getting Donald Trump, but like the, you know, the whole reference back to uh, the communism where they said, you know, find me the man, I'll find you the crime. She literally ran yeah. on that. There's multiple videos out on every social media platform that are of her saying just that. Then when this thing got into trial, after Angoran lost several other ways to try and get this to, you know, get Donald Trump, you you see a very partisan narrative start to come out about who he's donated to in the past and how his wife felt about Donald Trump. She showed some disturbing images on her social medias, which depicted the former president in a prison uniform and, and things of that nature. And it's like when there's not going to be a jury, even in a place like New York, and you have all of the defense favoring Donald Trump, but this is the way the business essentially is ran. This is, you know, under budget and ahead of schedule as far as the payments. And I mean, the guy got trophies from the banks that he was loaned money from for being such a a big whale, as he put it, in regards to, you know, the way he conducted business and uh, 
handled his properties. And then when you see some of the stuff that's come out over the course of the last week and a half since this ruling, Jesse, even more mm-hmm. disturbing nature. You have the judge saying that he's probably not going to let them adhere to the 30-day stay that they asked for, probably while you know the team is trying to formulate how they're going to take this through the appeals process. In addition, you have both the judge and, and, and the attorney general in, in the state of New York saying that, you want to know what, if Donald Trump's going to play games, we're just going to start seizing assets, starting with things like Trump Tower. And it's just like, how can no one else be able to step in ahead of the appellate process and, and, and make the case for this is what kangaroo court literally it's the definition of it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and what they know is uh, what, what I believe they absolutely know is that this decision has no basis and sooner or later an appellate court is going to step them back the the appellate division in new york city which quite frankly is no friend of donald trump sure um they've already reversed this judge uh twice on interlocutory appeals in this case which is really unusual for in one case for there to be two you know kind of what you can think of as halftime appeals normally you can't appeal a decision until the end of the case in New York, there's some ways that you can you can appeal decisions earlier, um, and it's really unusual that you would see two different uh, uh, reversals of uh, of the same judge in one case um, before there's even a final judgment. And so, I think that they know that they don't have a leg to stand on, um, and so they they think, well, how can we take and stick it to this guy um, without the appellate courts being able to stop us? You know, to do some permanent damage to him, even though the you know appellate courts are likely to reverse, because what they what they know, what Letitia Letitia James uh, believes she can do, you know, in in my opinion, what I I really think she's she's focused on, and what Judge Engeron, I unfortunately is is doing as well, is knowing that the process is the punishment yep. that they can go ahead and try to uh, you know go after Donald Trump, and let's be real, what this is all about is trying to affect the twenty twenty four election, correct, and how they can do these things to him with. Out the appellate courts being able to to intervene on on his behalf, it's it's vile, it's disgusting, it's it is an affront not just to Donald Trump, not just to the Trump organization, not just to the Trump family, but to all Americans and to our our, our separation of powers, to the rule of law in this country. And um, you know there needs to be some very serious accountability uh, for people that that put the um, uh, the rule of law second to their own political uh, agenda. Yeah, it's, it's wild to see how this is going. And it's going to be interesting to see how it kind of develops. Uh, I mean, you know, a lot of people weren't so optimistic about this whole Georgia case when it started, and they tried to make it look like, you know, this is going to be a slam dunk for uh, Fonnie Willis down there. Ah. And then look, over the course of the last six months, it's been <laughs> quite a wild ride, and here we are. We're looking to get a ruling on that in, in a very short amount of time. But what I do want to ask you about is, we're waiting on some decisions from the Supreme Court of the United States right now, a couple in regards to Donald Trump being allowed to appear on ballots in the upcoming primaries and general election, in addition to presidential immunity. As you see these uh, you know, things being digested at the Supreme Court level, Jesse, how do you feel that we're looking, uh, probably getting some rulings on these soon? Yeah, I mean, there could be some uh, decisions coming soon. I mean, the Supreme Court, uh, they get to move at, at the pace that they think is appropriate. Um, and uh, 
that is the uh, the advantage of being the court of last resort. Um, and um, I think that the justices are are weighing uh, these issues very very carefully, very thoughtfully. Um, and I, I certainly know um, what legally should be done in this case. But you know, here's here's what I, I hope happens in a lot of these cases right now. I hope we have some judges uh, out there that are well-tempered and cool heads and say, you know what? This litigation is very clearly being used right now to try to, uh, you know, try and use the court system uh, in our country, you know, n- numerous court systems in our country sure. to impact a presidential election. And we're just not going to let them do that. You know, for for decades and decades, it has been the policy that, you know, especially in the criminal justice system, that we don't use the criminal justice system to try to impact uh, uh, elections. And the Department of Justice, through their through its special counsel, Jack Smith, um, you know, Jack Smith, who was specifically appointed by by Merrick Garland, uh, you know, Joe Biden's handpicked attorney general is using this this process and he's he's you know almost gone all the way to admitting it that he's trying to use this process to impact the presidential election um and i think uh i really i i hope that there are justices that no matter what side of the political spectrum uh they might be on personally that they know the danger to America that is uh, existing right now by allowing these cases uh, to be used for political purposes. Um, and so that's that's certainly what I, I think should happen. We'll, we'll see what ends up happening here um, when we get decisions from the court in the coming you know hours, weeks, uh, days, months, whatever it might be. No, that's, that's interesting how you framed it. And, you know, I think uh, I don't think these uh, Supreme Court justices or, or the, the teams that are around them keep themselves in a bubble necessarily. I do think they stay pretty dialed in. Yeah. Uh, not really maybe partisan opinionly, but just to know what's going on when they have to see some of these rulings and they know and see how the justice system is being used. I don't want them to rule in Donald Trump's favor because we need to get some points on the board in regards to some of the civil cases that are going on. I want them to rule in favor of Donald Trump to reset the standard of what the law should actually be, what the constitution actually says and how jobbed him and his entire family are getting by these partisan hacks who get put in by, you know, people like George Soros and all these dark money entities and Democrat super donors who come in there and they get them up from the ground level. They get them into, you know, state offices or, or district attorneys or state Supreme Courts. And the next thing you know, these people are running at the direction of their funders and not at the direction of what the rule of law says. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and it's, it's um, you know, you said something that I think is actually extremely important um that i wanted to an opportunity to kind of talk more about sure and that is um that these judges don't live in a bubble and that's 100 right judges you know are people they they you know read uh the news uh the same way other people do um you know perhaps most of them coming from an early era are a little bit more likely to to read more traditional news outlets than um you know a lot of other americans are now but we have judicial codes of conduct that are supposed to um, guard against judges using their knowledge from other sources, and that includes the media, in their judicial decision making. When they put on that black dress, 
you know, when they put on the robe, they're supposed to, at that point, um, uh, be a blank slate. They're, su- they're supposed to, at that point, take the facts that come to them through the appropriate uh, uh, avenues in the court system and only consider those facts. And they're supposed to consider the law um, as you know, presented in, in previous cases and statutes um, in the Constitution of the United States. And they're supposed to consider only that law. They're not supposed to consider um, these, uh, you know, uh, the the information they get from partisan uh, news outlets. They're certainly not, not supposed to, you know, consider which politician they like and, and don't like. But too often what happens is judges have forgotten, I, I think, their duty to only accept facts um, that are presented them uh, to them through the uh, uh, through that very specific process. And. They instead, you know, whether it's, it's watching cable news, whether it's, you know, reading, uh, you know, the, the New York Times or Washington Post, or whether it's talking to their judicial colleagues and their staff mm-hmm. about about political issues, they're letting that bleed over into their decision making. And if we and that's the crisis of, of judicial conscience that I'm talking about, because if we don't find a way to get that under control and remind judges that that is, you know, that they are not allowed to do that. And then this the the rule of law that we've depended on for, you know, not only throughout our entire history of this country, but going back to the days of of the English common law before. Sure. That's all in danger. Um, And so we really need to to do that. And, you know, especially where you have judges that actually donate to political candidates. Oh, my gosh. It's just it's such a horrible idea for for any judge or judicial candidate to, to donate to other political candidates and then not to recuse themselves when they when they do which is you know what we have you know for instance one of the best examples of that is is the the new york judge um on the on the alvin bragg case who donated to joe biden yep now now alvin bragg is you know very clearly using a a case to try to help joe biden um win re-election to the presidency and this judge thinks it's perfectly okay for him to stay on the case decide the despite the fact that there's certainly the just the appearance of 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 uh, partiality, and that alone should be enough to get him to recuse himself. So you know, obviously, you've you've touched on an issue right now that I'm I'm pretty fired up on. Uh, but we really need to to get some action on this to make sure that this never ever happens again. It looks like we could rehash that the next time we have you on the show, Jesse. We're going to be live linking the law group in the show description today. Always a pleasure to be able to sit down with you, especially on a big Friday edition of the show. Anybody that wants to follow you on social media and check you out, where can they find you? They can find me at at jbinall, at J-B-I-N-N-A-L-L. That's on True Social, on X, uh, Instagram. You can find me there. And www.banal.com is the website. Oh, so thank, thanks thank, a ton. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for coming down and sharing with our listenership. Today is the man that heads the Banal Law Group, constitutional attorney, Justin Banal. Thanks for joining us. Have a great rest of the weekend. You too. Fox News alert. The FBI informant who was arrested after saying Biden took bribes from Ukraine has been released from custody while he awaits trial. This is the same guy who the FBI worked with for years and top Democrats called highly credible. But today, Biden's Department of Justice is calling him a Russian spy. They say he has ties to Russian intelligence. Where'd they get that from? The FBI informant told the FBI he talks to the Russians. That's part of his job as an FBI informant. So why is Biden's Department of Justice putting that in their court filing? It's a smear job. They just gave the media and the Democrats permission to call the Ukraine bribes and the Biden impeachment Russian disinformation for the rest of the year. 
Hunter just said he should get his plea deal back because this guy's a Russian spy. It's the same thing they did with the laptop, same thing they did with Trump. Once you put the Russian label on something, it's debunked until the election's over, and then we find out it's true. All right, welcome back to the news. Last news segment of the week. We're going to cover some headlines. I thought this one was pretty interesting, Noah. So there was an FBI informant who was corroborating damning information on the Biden crime family, especially Hunter Biden and Joe Biden's connectivity tissue to all of the business dealings that were going on in places like Russia, Ukraine, Romania, etc. Stuff to do with the Chinese. This guy was a trusted asset and had be working on behest of the FBI for years, paid hundreds of thousands of dollars. And once they got Joe Biden's brother, James Biden in to testify this week and give his deposition on what Joe Biden knew or not, the FBI decided to say, this guy who we hired as a confidential human source who works with the Russians to give us information on the Biden crime family about their business dealings in Russia is a Russian spy, so we need to arrest him. How does that make sense to you, Noah? (laughs) I I just, like, we're still going to do this? We like we're not just gonna we're not just gonna drop it and and stop doing this. The House Oversight Committee put out a tweet yesterday um, after this news broke, and believe me, that report from two days ago from Jesse Waters is not where this ends. You heard what he said, right? He was arrested and then released on bonds, and now was waiting on his first hearing. It gets even spicier. Here's what the House Oversight Committee official account had to say: We can clear this up for the American public. Number one, we never knew this informant's name. They only knew him, I guess, via documentation number two we never physically talked to this informant again confirms how they knew of him number three the fbi never gave us his name and redacted the fd 1023 because they said he was so important to an ongoing investigation that he could not be doxxed number four the fbi told the oversight committee during our investigation including the democrats that the informant had worked for them for a number of years was paid and of course highly credible They would go on to say with a little bit of commentary, no one is falling for this Russia hoax 2.0, if that's what you're peddling. Think it ends there. It gets a little bit more interesting. So this guy's walking the streets for 12 hours after he's initially arrested, booked, charged, and released on bond. Here comes Thursday, and here's what happened. Breaking news on the story we brought you in the last hour. The former FBI informant charged with making false allegations to federal officials about President Biden and his son Hunter, Alexander Smirnov, has been arrested again. <laughs> Let's bring in NBC News investigations correspondent Tom Winter. Tom, walk me through the sequence of what happened here. Right. So according to his attorneys, this morning they're meeting at their office going over legal strategy. He's there for legal consultation Mm -hmm. and federal agents show up, present a signed warrant out of the Central District of California and take him back into custody. What is so odd about this is that there has been no filings. There have been no filings whatsoever in the in that particular docket in California. And as you remember yesterday, just a little over 25 hours ago, you and I were sitting here and I was still refreshing that same docket 
trying to determine whether or not a judge would say, yes, let's have a hearing. I'll revisit this issue of him being allowed to be out on bail under a number of conditions pending his trial. And then, you know, we talked about the basics of the case. There is nothing in here that indicates initially that the judge revisited this issue at all, let alone signed off on an arrest warrant for him to be taken back in. Now, according to his attorneys, it's for the same indictment and the same charges. So it would not be totally unusual for me if I heard about this happening and that there was a superseding indictment or additional charges or things that had come up since he had been arrested, since this started to be talked about uh, approximately a week ago. So uh, it's interesting to me that this happened. It appears to have happened quite quickly. And I think we'll probably get some documentation here shortly, which will walk us through where we're going. You catch all that, Noah? Yeah. It seemed like they threw out so many fishers to try and figure out which like U.S. attorney was going to issue a an arrest warrant for this guy that I think they might have gone to two different offices and over the course of 12 hours overlapped, not realizing that he had already been arrested. So after he was arrested, charged, and released on bond, he goes to meet with his lawyers the next day, gets raided by the FBI, put in handcuffs. They threw like a ski mask on him so the public wouldn't see what he looked like and rearrested him again. <laughs> Yeah, good job. Russiagate hoax 2.0 again, revisiting all the Russia bullshit. And it's like Jesse Waters kind of said, you know, we are going to see a lot of stuff that the intelligence agencies and the Justice Department in this country try to use against Donald Trump. That's just completely untrue. And that might kind of be a, you know, cavalier statement, but we've been seeing it for eight years now. And every single thing or narrative that they try to build up one more outrageous than the next, you know, by the time we get to deconstructing this entire thing, everything from the Hunter Biden laptops to something I touched on in our first edition of the Steak for Records podcast today, metaphorically, the Donald mm-hmm. Trump P-tapes, you know, it's all been bullshit, all of it. And every single person that was a part of the Obama administration, Clapper, Comey, Brennan, Jarrett, Rice, Sullivan, Blinken, Hillary Clinton, who has been lurking around, they're all complicit in this. And it's because they all sing the exact same spiel to the American people that unfortunately there's a large number of the population that actually believes it. And this is what Donald Trump has had to go up against. Thankfully, he's out on the campaign trail and and being such a touchable physical candidate this cycle again, like he was in 2016. The American people are actually seeing through the bullshit but for the fact of the matter is you've heard a lot of almost every clip we've played from the other side of the aisle during this podcast today has been nothing but absolute desperation. And this is just another yeah. attempt at it to, you know, uh, disenfranchise an asset that they had used for years, paid hundreds of thousands of dollars, had gotten legitimate intel on the Biden crime family on and now saying is, nope, too much connection to Russia, but he's getting information for you from Russia. No, 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 like not Russia, Russia. And it's like, Russia. come on, man. As Joe Mother Biden Russia? would say. It's wild. It's wild. But but we are having some good stuff. You know, I, I did see, I forgot to mention it during the uh, Trump Town Hall segment. I am going to bring it up just to make sure that we, we covered that bullet point. Here's a good one for you, Noah. For the first time in several presidencies, the Teamsters didn't make an endorsement yet, but made a large contribution, $45,000 to Donald Trump's reelection campaign yesterday. It was the first time that the Teamsters had donated to a Republican candidate in decades. So, albeit they haven't given him 
the official nod yet from the largest labor union in the world, uh, making that big money donation directly to the campaign on behalf of their corporate entity is a big step in the right direction. It would be damning for Joe Biden. Obama got it twice. Bill Clinton got it twice. Probably every Democrat before them got it. And, you know, not to get the Teamsters, that's going to be huge. That would motivate that workforce even more to get out there and vote for Donald Trump. What we won't be voting on anytime soon is legislation in the House. And with a looming government shutdown, we are running the risk of seeing the Biden administration be held to account for only wanting to support Ukraine and not wanting to shut down the borders. I saw that Byron Donalds jumped on with Boomer Steve yesterday and was kind of talking about what's going on in his district and the possibility of a government shutdown. Let's hear it. My constituents, and look, we, I live in Naples, Florida, beautiful place. Everybody comes down there. Uh, my constituency, they want the border secured. They want the Constitution followed. And then after that, they just want to be left alone. But when they see this mess on Capitol Hill, you know, they're incredibly frustrated. And so as I've been talking about this at home and, and talking about this up here on the Hill, you know, people back home are saying, yeah, that's the right move. Because at the end of the day, you know, I'm a business guy before I got into politics. If you don't do your job, you don't get paid. If there is a business that I was going to do contract with, get services from, and they don't give me the services, they don't get money. And up here on Capitol Hill, if the federal government's not going to do its job, why should you pay them? It's that simple. It's simple logic. And I think that's where my district is. I don't even think I know that's where my district is. And I believe that's where the American people are. It's a pretty strong worded point. And, you know, there's been a lot of that lately. I want to talk to our listenership. We probably won't be doing any comprehensive coverage of CPAC, or as we like to call it, Boomer Pack, uh, here on the show outside of any new remarks that Donald Trump would give when he keynote speaks later this weekend. Um, We just kind of look at it as a huge cheerleading event. There's no real policy or agenda discussed there. It's good for all the people that could afford it to get out and spend money on the Republican Party at the three-day event and get to see and interact with all of your favorite you know, heroes and, and villains from within inside the GOP. However, I just don't feel like wasting important time when we're talking about the actual issues here on the show outside of President Trump's remarks. You know, I even saw, like, they want to talk about Tulsi Gabbard being a legitimate vice presidential candidate uh, to maybe be on the ticket with Donald Trump. And all she did was, you know, complain about Nikki Haley and talk about how Donald Trump likes the military when Three years ago, she was saying the direct opposite, saying that he pimps out the military and doesn't respect them. So you take it for what it is. I mean, it's kind of cool to see like Vivek Ramaswamy in person and Matt Gates and all the other stuff they've got going on there. But, you know, for everybody else that's involved, it's weird. Like the, the America First Circle jerk, like all the whole war room gang, they're all friends with like Charlie Kirk. But Charlie Kirk does his own thing, so he doesn't do CPAC. And so they're like not friends with him this week. But you know, next week, they'll all be friends on each other's show again. And it, it's a money driven thing. Uh, the candidates who are in, like in the S tier and all of the political figures that are in the S tier, they're there on behalf of their speaking fees. And mm-hmm. then every, everybody else who's like, you know, in Congress and senators or people that are just commentators and stuff that are there, they're there to promote their brand. And that's kind of what it is. It's like a comic con for politicians. And I really don't pay too much mind to it. Last call for wherever you're listening to the podcast today, Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or iHeartRadio. Make sure you subscribe to the show. Make sure it's downloading to your electronic device. And find us on social media at Twitter, Getter, True Social, and Instagram. Never miss out on anything Stay for Breakfast when you follow and hit the notification bell. Get things like upcoming guests, 
links to our Substack, which promotes a weekly newsletter, and you'll get all the information that's directly related to the show. So Ted Cruz, you know, we, we touched on the border a little bit. I saw some numbers from ICE come out this week, and uh, as you can imagine, they're not good. Um, there's been a huge, huge increase in the amount of Chinese nationals that have been coming into the United States uh, via the southern border down here in Southern California. And very alarming to see, you know, you're talking about hundreds over the course of the last three years. And then just since the start of October, now you're seeing tens of thousands. And it's just absolutely wild to see the amount of people that have come in here. Here's some of the posts that I saw. We've got, well, here's a good one for you. You know, this is a little trip down history lane. From 1892 to 1954, a span of 62 years, roughly 12 million people came into the United States immigrating here the right way and coming through Ellis Island. Mm -hmm. Since the start of the Biden administration, and this is an official DHS number, I don't think this includes getaways, 2021 to 2024, just three years, not 62, 7.2 million people have come into the United States the wrong way. How does that make you feel when you when you put your head down on your pillow at night? I don't like it. I don't think anybody does. Me no likey. And here's another thing about all of the Chinese illegals that are coming in here now. I don't know if you knew this, Noah, but did you, did you know China's one of those countries that refuses their own illegals back? Like they won't allow planes to land in a, in a repatriation effort? Wait, who doesn't? China. China. Well, that's no surprise. Why would they want to take people back that try to bail? And, and Donald Trump has said several times throughout the course of the last three years as he's campaigning to retake the White House that a lot of these countries in the third world are now emptying out both their prisons and mental institutions and sending all of those criminals here to the United States, right? Mm-hmm. Well, as of yesterday, Venezuela said they will no longer be accepting the same kind of flights where they are sending people who have crossed the border illegally from Venezuela back there from the United States. Here's the context. There was approximately 335,000 Venezuelan nationals encountered in fiscal year 2023. Just over 201,000 of them were apprehended by Border Patrol after crossing illegally. The rest were encountered at ports of entry, which would include the CBP-1 app paroles into the United States. Okay, 335,000. Mm. Venezuela has now become another uncooperative country. The Biden administration has made some progress in sending some flights back there, but those flights have stopped in recent days and now have ended. Biden is also, in an attempt to quell this, redesignated temporary protective status, you hear that on the news a lot, TPS, for Venezuelans who arrived before January 31st, 2023, shielding around 470,000 of them from deportation. Essentially, a drop in the bucket have been removed, and that number of people that were removed, you ready for this one? Mm -hmm. 335,000 came in this year. Since July of, or I'm sorry, since January of 2023, 470,000 total, 834 have been returned to Venezuela. Yeesh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Gotta love it. Ted Cruz was uh, slamming the Biden administration over the amount of illegals that have come in on the news yesterday. Let's hear him. Dan, we have to act. This is a crisis. The reason I oppose the Chuck Schumer border bill is it didn't secure the border. It wasn't intended to secure the border. That bill would have put into law, it would have codified 
Joe B Biden's open borders. It would have put into law and codified catch and release, which is what has caused this crisis. It, it would have paid billions of dollars to sanctuary cities and to nonprofit organizations that are facilitating the human trafficking. Not only that, it would have normalized 5,000 illegal immigrants a day. That's 1.8 million a year. Oof. That means we would have seen over 6 million under Joe Biden's presidency. And it would normalize that every year into perpetuity, 2 million a year, 2 million a year, 2 million mm. a year. On top of that, those people who came illegally, it gave immediate work permits. And for some of them, it assigned them taxpayer funded lawyers at the border. This was designed by Democrats to keep this open border invasion in place forever. That's why I opposed it. Now you ask, what can we do? What we can do is we can pass HR2. HR2 is the strong border security legislation that the House of Representatives took up and they passed. It's designed to end catch and release, to build the wall, to stop the open borders Joe Biden has put into place. In the Senate, I introduced HR2. I'm the author of HR2 in the Senate. And Chuck Schumer and the Democrats said, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. And the reason, understand the reason, it's because they want this open border mm -hmm. chaos to continue. Mm -hmm. They look at 10.6 million illegal immigrants and they see future Democrat voters. Yep. And if people have to suffer and die for them to get a political advantage, they're willing to mm -hmm. make that trade-off. Gotta love it, right? Government that works for you. Any kind of talk of border security from either side of the aisle. I feel between now and November is just empty rhetoric. It's virtue signaling. It's all it is. The reels that have come in here, Corey Mills has Tim Burchett over the course of the last couple of weeks, especially Matt Gates. You know, he said that was one of the most difficult questions he's been asked. All said that we're not going to see any kind of comprehensive border security or anything that solves what's going on on either one of our borders right now until sometime uh, beginning in January of 2025. So buckle up, buckaroos. As we're getting a segue here and jump in with North Carolina congressional candidate Sandy Smith, we'll be hearing from her ahead of her Super Tuesday primary election down in North Carolina. Going to be great for her. Christy Nome has been doing a lot of stumping. She's been on the ground in South Carolina. She's also been doing a lot of media, talking about some of the ways that she's looking to help prepare Donald Trump to have a successful return to the White House. And one of the things that I think we really have to look at is the changes that are about to come at the RNC following the South Carolina primary tomorrow. We have heard that Ronna McDaniel will be stepping down or removed from her position, and Michael Watley will be heading the organization now with co-chair, hopefully, Laura Trump. We're going to hear from her in a second, too, as we wrap up the week in the news. And Chris Lasavita, senior campaign advisor and one of the biggest strategists for Donald Trump's re-election campaign will be joining the RNC, staying on the campaign as well as the COO, chief operating officer there. Let's hear Christy Noem talk about some of the changes we got to make before we head to the ballot box this November. ...have to be prepared for is because the Democrats will try to do everything that they've done in the past in some of these states. If you think back to 2020, how governors wrote 
emergency declarations and had the opportunity to run their elections however they wanted to. And it's not that they did one thing, it's that they did everything, Jesse. And so that's what's in danger right now is people trusting our election system. Our Secretary of States are our chief election officers. It matters who sits in those offices, just like it matters who sits in governor's offices. I'm so proud of South Dakota. We've got a, a high integrity election system. We vote on paper on and before election day. You have to use an ID to vote. Um, it's one of the examples that rest of these states should follow. But Jesse, what I'm shocked by is that after 2020, that in a lot of these swing states, those liberal Democrat governors got reelected. Yep. They got reelected and they're still in charge. So they still may find a way to figure out a way to conduct elections in ways that ignore law. And we have to be prepared. Republicans follow the law. We respect our Constitution. We will do things correct. But boy, we're going to have to outwork them and we're going to have to be smarter than them. Uh, and we Does will that, do that mean and Republicans we'll... have to hire guys like Craig? If Craig can <laughs> no. operate do within the legal Craig. system, do not hire Craig. Do not hire Craig. Please do not hire Craig. Um, okay. What about a law-abiding Craig? Craig? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, well, if he knows how, it sounds to me like Craig's not quite sure how to follow the law. So um, what okay. I would say is that everything is at stake this year. Um, you know, we literally have an invasion going on in our country. Today I announced I was deploying National Guard down to our southern border for the fifth time. Good I was the her. first governor in the Good country to do so several years ago, recognizing what's happening and what Joe Biden's doing to this country. So listen, we let's get, let's get real. Leadership has consequences. It matters who's in that White House. It matters who's in these governor's offices. It's all hands on deck, and we need to win this election. Mm. She makes some good points. You know, even when Jesse Waters tries to make it a little bit light, the good thing about it is, is that Donald Trump has lawyered up with some major attorneys uh, that are going to be dispatched to all of the swing states well ahead of the elections to be providing some oversight. In addition, I can guarantee you, after what happened in 2020, we're not going to have water main breaks in the middle of the night, and we're not going to have states taking weeks to count votes anymore. That that won't fly with the American people, and I, and I really don't think that, you know, the overwhelming majority of the population is going to buy that this time. No, so, there's no way. There's not going to be a steal, but they're going to try everything in between. We've given you guys a very broad stroke of what the Democrats are doing right now, both at the direction of the Biden regime and ones that are working independently that just know their grasp on power slips every day that Donald Trump wins another primary, that he goes up in the poll, and that he beats one of these sham investigations into, uh, you know, whether it's his fake finances or if he's an insurrectionist. Last clip before we jump in with Sandy Smith. And in our last audio clip of the week, Laura Trump has been out big time on the campaign trail. She was down in South Carolina yesterday talking about the promises that she's making to the American people and Republican voters if she's elected to the RNC's co-chairship. Let's hear it. If I am elected co-chair of the RNC, we are going to have out of control, like we've never seen in America, voter registration, legal ballot harvesting all over this country, a ground game like we have never seen before, election day operations, poll watchers in every polling location across this country. And we're not just going to poll watch. We have already seen that the RNC has started it and we will continue doing this trained poll watchers. These are people who go in and actually physically handle the ballots. You can count every ballot coming in so you know how many ballots go out. We are going to have to play this game so much better than the Democrats that we leave nothing to chance come November 5th. And I'll tell you something else we have to start doing.
early voting. I know we love one election day. We love paper ballots. We love everybody to have voter ID because that makes sense, doesn't it, in the United States? We may get back there one day, but we are not there today. And so because of that, we are going to have to start banking our votes. And we do that with turning out to. You know, and here's the thing, whether or not the election system in this country is ever going to get fixed or how much federal input on it is ever going to happen. It's not happening between now and November. It wasn't going to happen between 2020 and 2024 either. The amount of stuff that needs to get fixed, and you're talking about everything from like the money that comes in, let's just say Zuckerbucks. Um, let's just say ways that state constitutions were circumvented, like happened in Pennsylvania. They voted on the election is going to happen this way, and then the Secretary of State went behind its entire Congress's back and said, I'm changing those rules, and nobody's going to stop me. And then all the states that have free-for-all mail-in ballots, I see it on social media every day, people getting ballots to wrong addresses, to people who aren't addressed to them, multiple ballots. All of that stuff needs to be worked out, but it wasn't going to happen in four years. And it's definitely not going to happen by November. So for as much as we don't like to bite the bullet and just have to suck it up, she makes an excellent point. You are overwhelming every facet of the system that they set up in place to try and slow you down, which includes game day voting, early voting, banking your votes, and mail-in voting. And, and it's just the only way... It's the way Donald Trump got over 75 million votes in 2020, and it's the way hopefully he'll get at least that much in 2024. And I think you can't really say too much else about it. It's not the system that we all like to be in right now, but it's the only system we've got, so we have to be able to game it instead of do the same thing every time and then complain afterwards. So I think we're going to leave it at that as we're wrapping up the week here on Steak for Breakfast. As far as the news goes, we're going to jump in with congressional candidate Sandy Smith, who's running for a House seat. NC1 down in North Carolina right now. But before we do that, one last check-in with one of our partners. Friends, I want to take a minute and talk to you about cigars. Whether you're on the golf course, fishing on the lake, or doing some yard work around the house, our friend Alan has got you covered. He's launched the Patriot Cigar Company. The tobacco is hand-picked in the fields of Nicaragua, right next to where Mike Lindell picks his coffee beans. The cigars are hand-rolled each three years. If you get a promo code STAKE here, you're going to get 15% off your total order. Every order over $100, free shipping, and a $10 e-gift card is included with every purchase. MyPatriotCigars.com, that's MyPatriotCigars.com, a premium smoke for freedom-loving patriots. All right, joining us next on the show today, this big Friday edition of the Steak for Breakfast podcast, she's the candidate who's running to make North Carolina's first congressional district great again, Ms. Sandy Smith. Welcome back to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, it's great to be back. Hey, always a pleasure having you, and uh, we are looking forward to a big primary win here in a, just a few short weeks. Do want to get our listenership dialed in, top of the interview right here. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but we've already got early voting started in the state of North Carolina right now, which means they can get out and vote for you? Yes, that is correct, and we need everyone to get out and vote as soon as possible. You know, absolutely fantastic. And then uh, you are a Super Tuesday state, so that's when we'll be seeing everybody at the ballot box going out for day of voting on March 5th. That is correct. And we're excited. President Trump's going to be on the ballot. I'll be on the ballot. And then we've got governor and a bunch of other races on the ballots are super important. Absolutely fantastic. Very excited for it and for you, Sandy. Listen, we want to get the latest on the race right now. Let's talk about what's going on in North Carolina's first congressional district in the Republican primary and with some of the challengers that are out there. 
Well, I actually have one challenger. She actually is a, a bona fide carpet bagger from DC. Uh, she moved here, you know, just, a, you know, 21, 22 months ago or something like that. Uh, she actually admitted she was recruited. And uh, the thing is, we are doing so strong and so well in this area that now Kevin McCarthy and his dark money have come in to campaign for her and are spending money against me. So uh, that just shows the strength. And uh, they think they can fool people with fake MAGA. You know, they come in here and they're total moderates. Then they find out that this is MAGA country. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, I like Trump. But they have no history of it. Uh, everything is fabricated. And the folks see through the nonsense. You know, when, when you talk about this, it, you, we had talked about it for the last couple of weeks of the show, what Kevin McCarthy's doing. We're seeing some of the, the stronger, more familiar candidates, a lot of them like yourself, who was endorsed in the general election last time by President Trump, uh, just have these candidates dumped into their district right now who's going to try and song and dance their way through the primary and then get up to Capitol Hill next year and wind up being one of those 106, 107 Republicans that always vote with the Democrats for things like funding forever wars, continuing resolutions, omnibuses and no border security. We cannot have that at this time in our nation's history right now, this primary, this district, which is definitely a bellwether, is one of the most important uh, of the races that we've been tracking for the last two cycles now. What is it that you need from our listenership, both inside and outside of the state, to best help support you through this early voting period and all the way up to Super Tuesday? That is a great question. Well, let me just step back just a second in regards to uh, the dark DC swamp money that's being spent against me. The reason they are targeting me, one is this is a the, one of the top dis districts in the country. And on top of that, I have four of the eight folks that voted to vacate the chair. So it's a personal vendetta against uh, anyone that has supported them or believes that they have done the right thing. But your listeners can help me because I'm going through and going against a self-funder multimillionaire who's made her money as a war profiteer. So if they can go to my website, sandysmithnc.com, click on that donate button, every single dollar counts. We are getting uh, a, a ton of support, but we need a, we need more just to you know get us across in that final stretch. You know, and then if you're in state, what kind of ground game do you need assistance with? There's a lot of people who we talk to throughout the state of North Carolina that are always very interactive, getting people involved. And uh, we want to get as many people on the ground running for you as possible as well. Absolutely. You can actually come out. We're knocking doors. We're making phone calls. Uh, we This is a true grassroots. And that's why we've had such a uh, positive impact and we're doing so well. If they want to knock doors, just give my campaign a hop. They can even email Brandon. He's going to love this. Brandon <laughs> at SandysmithNC.com. He answers very quickly and is always on it. I think our listenership will be uh, great to connect with him. Now, I, I do need to go back and look at your resume. Although you did not win in the general election in 2022, you overperformed in a district that has been redistricted now, which those numbers back from 2022 make it even more favorable for you to win NC1 in this general election cycle coming up now. Talk to our listenership a little bit about what went on when you got out there and met with the constituents and how the message that you were trying to deliver actually resonated with them as plausible solutions get this country back on the right track well th that they're actually tired of the swamp uh pack group you know politicians that answer to the to the dc swampers and the uh, special interest groups and they know that uh, i'm going to work for them and we've built those relationships throughout the district the, i overperformed this district in 2022 by over five points and that's after it was gerrymandered by the democrat judges 
And like you said, we've been redistricted. And had I ran under this these maps last cycle, I would be a sitting congresswoman, would have won with over 8,000 votes. And with everyone's help this cycle um, on in getting out and vote on Super Tuesday, we are going to uh, really exceed that. We're probably going to push between 10 and 12,000 votes. We're going to beat Don Davis. Absolutely fantastic. And Go ahead. I was going to say the big thing is, and, and we've got to, as Republicans, be aware of this. Uh, we are allowing some of these milk toast moderates to be nominated um, as Republicans. And what happens uh, is when they go against the Democrats, the Democrats beat them every single time yep. because they can't get people out to vote. We've seen it in New York. We saw it in Pennsylvania. And we cannot allow that to happen in North Carolina. And that is why it's so important to get out and vote. No, oh, you know, and then when you talk about a lot of the guests who usually come through our show, some of the candidates that we've tracked over the course of several cycles who are congressmen and women. Now, you've received some big endorsements from a lot of the uh, America First men up on, and women up on Capitol Hill. Tell our listenership a little bit about that. Absolutely. It's a huge honor. I have the endorsement of the House Freedom Caucus Chairman, Bob Good. I have the endorsement of Congressman Eli Crane, former Navy SEAL, fantastic patriot. I have the endorsement of Congressman Andy Biggs. I also have the, the uh, endorsement of Congressman uh, Paul Gosar. <laughs> and I have Veterans for Trump. I have Bikers for Trump. I'm the only candidate that was actually endorsed by President Trump in 2022 because he knows I'm going to stand by him and fight for the America First um, issues that we are fighting for. No, you certainly are. And then when you talk about some of those congressmen that you just rattled off right now, that's like a murderer's row of the usual suspects who come here on Steak for Breakfast. Everyone from House Freedom Chair Bob Good all the way down through Eli Crane and Andy Biggs, definitely mainstays and regulars here on the show, big contributors and the ones who are really pushing back against the D-Suite swamp, which is what exactly we hope you are going to be doing after November. Sandy, one more time, I want you to give our listenership your website and where they can contact you. We're going to live link everything in the show description today. Remind us again of the dates with early voting and then where we could find you on social media. Sure. Okay. My website is sandysmithnc.com. Go to my website, click on that donate button. If you can chip in five bucks, that's awesome. If you can help me out and chip in a, uh, a max out donation, that gets more commercials on the, the airways, gets us on the radio longer. Um, you can go and find me on social media, all platforms. It's Sandy Smith NC. And like I said earlier, if you want to knock doors and you're in the North Carolina area, feel free to drop Brandon an email at Brandon at sandysmithnc.com and yes we always say let's go Brandon <laughs> I absolutely love it as I love following you Sandy we're going to be tracking you all the way through this primary season up through the general election in November because obviously you're going to have a big win on Super Tuesday and then all the way up to Capitol Hill where you'll be joining us as one of the regular congresswomen who always attend here on Steak for Breakfast listen Everything's live linked in the show description today. We are going to try and also get you in here one more time before Super Tuesday just to get those last minute helps in there before everyone goes to the ballot box. We really appreciate you taking the time and coming and sharing with our listenership. And just for everyone that's listening today, this might be the first time you're hearing Sandy. We've checked her for quite a long time. She's already received a Trump endorsement before. This is a warrior who is going to go up there and, and kick in doors and demand everything get back to normal for the American people once she gets up on the Capitol Hill next year. Can appreciate the job that she's done in both of her races so far up to this point and look forward to tracking her for many, many years to come. This is the candidate who's running in North Carolina's first congressional district, Miss Sandy Smith. Thanks for joining us today. Have a great rest of the weekend. 
Thanks, guys. God bless you, and have a great weekend, too. Nice wrap-up to the end of the week. Noah, glad to have you back. Good to be here. Always a pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast and want to hear the now nearly 340 other editions of the show, make sure you're subscribed across every downloadable podcasting platform. That's on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. Follow the show. Make sure it's downloading to your electronic device and find us on social medias. Twitter, get our true social and Instagram is where our accounts are. Follow them, hit the notification bell and make sure you're sharing all that great steak for breakfast content. We want to thank all of our guests for coming down and sharing with us today. Florida Congressman Corey Mills, Trump attorney, Jesse Benal, Trump spokeswoman, Caroline Levitt, former governor of Missouri, Eric Greitens and congressional candidate, Sandy Smith. You guys all helped make both of these Friday editions of Steak for Breakfast, great again. Guys, I know we're heading into the weekend, but don't worry. We're going to get a big win in the South Carolina primary tomorrow. We're going to have full comprehensive coverage of it on both of our Tuesday editions of the show. And we've got a great slate of guests lined up to come in. Arizona Congressman Andy Biggs will be here. Former Chief of Staff to the DOD. Cash Patel will be here as well. Indiana Congresswoman Victoria Sparks will be joining us. And probably another guest or two. So on behalf of the pod team... I'm Roan. Noah? Later. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. If you're down in South Carolina, get out and vote. And take care. Portable radio, video camcorder, portable phone. Get anything and everything that's portable on sale now. Remember, we are not undersold. We will not be undersold. We cannot be undersold. And we mean it. It's a crazy Eddie portable blowout blitz. Get anything and everything that's portable on sale right now. Crazy Eddie, his prices are portably insane.